want to encourage you, if you have not already done so, to take your Bible and turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. The title of this morning's message is Choosing Sides. And this is the second in a series of studies that we're doing on what it means to live a life of victory. And how can you experience the victorious life that is talked about in the New Testament and illustrated in the Old Testament? In chapter 2, we are going to take this idea of choosing sides and we're going to see it in the life of a woman named Rahab. And she's a very special lady, and I think you'll find her really encouraging to you if you can at all identify with someone who has a very broken past. The first seven verses of this chapter, it describes how Joshua sends a couple of men out to check out the promised land. They're called spies. The people of Israel were delivered from slavery in Egypt by going through the Red Sea. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, not because they didn't know where they were going, but because they had refused to enter the promised land the first time because they were afraid. And now they're about to enter the land again. And so all of Israel's parked just to the east of the River Jordan, and these two spies are sent out by Joshua, and they're told to especially go to check out Jericho. And when they get there, they go to stay in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. A lot of people have tried to explain that away because that word in Hebrew can also refer to someone who's an innkeeper. And yet when we come to the New Testament, we will in our study this morning, they actually use the word that describes someone who is in fact a prostitute. I can't imagine someone with more of a broken past than this dear woman had. They come to her house, and they're not very good spies, y'all, because it seems everybody in Jericho knew who they were and where they were. So the king sends a group to go to her house and get those men, and to protect them, she hides them on the roof and lies and says that they aren't there, and redirects the king's men out on a wild three-day goose chase to try to locate these two spies, telling them that they have returned to the River Jordan. And so what I want you to hear as we start, we want to see what happened in this woman's heart that brought her to this place. And and I want you to see what she says in verses 7 and what follows, verse 8 and what follows, 8 through 11. Listen to what she says to the spies after she sends the king's men away. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the word she uses there for Lord is not just a generic word for God. She uses the word Yahweh. She's referring to the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. And so she says, I know that Yahweh has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and she includes herself in that statement, us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water, the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. How long ago had that been at that point? Anybody? How long ago had the Red Sea event occurred at that moment? 40 years ago. 
40 years ago, the terror of the Lord had fallen on us. 40 years ago, we were faint-hearted because of you. 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness really for nothing. Because the battle, in one sense, was already won in terms of the weakness or the sense of defeat that the people of Jericho had. It says, And we heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one because of you. For the Lord your God, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth of it. We want to hear your word for us today. And so we ask, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each of us and apply your truth to those places in our heart that need to change. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is, at some point in your life, it may already be happening, there is a storm coming. Some of you, as you sit here this morning because of what's happening in your life, you can already hear the distant rumble of the storm. And it may be something personal that's happening in your circumstances or in your family. It may be something spiritual that is always happening around you and me. There's a battle for our souls taking place. And periodically it manifests in ways that we can see. And you may be seeing that or hearing that happening. It may be a global storm and we know that there's an end time conflict that is coming. And all that we put at God's feet called sin and evil and suffering and pain and hardship will be put away and stopped. Because it's something that God allows, but not something that God does. There's a storm coming, and how will you react when that storm strikes? You really don't want to wait until the storm comes to choose sides. The worst place to be in the middle of a conflict is in the middle between two combatants, and you don't know which side you're on. And, and, and you have to choose. And if there's going to be any experience of victory in the midst of this conflict that's coming into your life, this storm that is coming to your life, if there's any experience of victory, it's going to be because you have premeditated ahead of time. You had determined ahead of time, I am on a certain side. Well, Rahab recognized that a storm was coming. She heard it. She knew about it. She recognized it. In fact, all the people understood it. But whereas they were reacting with fear, she was reflecting. What kind of a God could open up the Red Sea and deliver all of these people from the most powerful man on the planet? What kind of God could sustain them through 40 years in the wilderness? What kind of God could do that? And, and she had reached a conclusion, and we'll see this in a moment, but she had made a decision that if I ever get the opportunity, and, and there was no way she could leave the city. She was just a one woman. And she had, a, she had an extended family. There's no way she could get them 
through the demilitarized zone all the way, three-day journey to the river and get them out. But she had made a decision that if she ever had that opportunity, she would be on the Lord's side. When she makes that decision, that's what chapter 2 of Joshua is all about. All these other things take place. One decision affects all the decisions that follow. And she makes this one choice, and as a consequence of that, she gets a new leader, a new power, a new purpose, a new identity. And I want us to explore those. What happens when you choose to follow the Lord? First, you can know when God is working. Because you have a new leader, you can know when God is working. Look at verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. Now, why did he send spies? I mean, when I read the text and I'm thinking about what we studied last week, where God told Joshua, no man will be able to stand against you. Every place you set your foot is ground that I have given to you. Why send out spies if you already know that you're going to win. You already know that you're going to have victory. Why do you do that? Well, perhaps he was just being a good general. And he was, he was just being careful, trying to understand something of the enemy's forces. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know that the walls of Jericho were going to fall down in a supernatural way. We're going to read about that next week. We're going to talk about strongholds in our life and how God pulls those down. He didn't know that was going to happen. And so from his vantage point, he perhaps thought that this was going to be a military campaign, totally, completely just a military campaign. So he wanted some information. He sends them out secretly. He had been on the last group that went out of 12 spies, and they came back and talked to all the people, and that didn't end well. So he just sends them out secretly. They're going to come back and report to him. Not really sure why he did that. But I know why God did it. And the New Testament makes it clear. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, Rahab is one of only two women mentioned in this chapter as an example of faith from the Old Testament. The other one is Sarah. In verse 31, it says, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. When she had received the spies with peace. That, that verse tells me three things about that moment when they came to her house and they knocked on the door and she opened it up and let them in. Tells me three things. First, it was an act of faith. She was trusting in God at that moment. Now, why was she trusting them? Because she already knew they were spies. There would have been no faith required if they were just ordinary travelers. And, and, and that's the second thing to see. The third thing to see is that she received them with peace. I mean, a spy is usually from a hostile group and you're trying to you're on, you're on another side. I'm, I'm a Jericho person, and so I'm for Jericho. I'm not for the spies. She doesn't do that. She welcomes them with peace. And the word used there describes the cessation of hostilities in the midst of a, of a battle or a conflict. And so what she does is she welcomes them as if they were one of her own. She receives them without any hostility, and she does it by faith. Now, why? Still, I'm asking the question, why did, why did she do that? Why did, why did Joshua send the spies? Why did she have faith when she knew these guys were spies for Israel and she welcomes them without hostility? Why does she do that? James chapter 2, verse 25 tells the rest of the story. 
in this argument in James 2, he's explaining that genuine faith is always shows up as a change of life. That if I'm really trusting God, then the things that I do reflect my faith in God. I can say I believe in him, but if it has no effect on how I live, he says it's not genuine faith. The, the devil, he would say in this, this passage of Scripture, he believes, he knows the truth, he's a great theologian, and, um, and yet he doesn't have biblical faith, saving faith. But she does. In James chapter 2, verse 25, James writes, Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Notice they're not called spies. They're called messengers. Literally sent ones. Sent ones. Something interesting is happening here. I don't think they even knew they were sent by God to Rahab. But she knew they were sent by God. Joshua didn't know he was sending spies out for Rahab's benefit, but Rahab knew they were being sent for her benefit. And so she recognized immediately when these men show up on her doorstep and they're spies and they're from Israel, my goodness, and by faith, thank you, Jesus, she welcomes them in her house. She receives them. There is no hostility because she's on the Lord's side. She's on the side of the God of Israel. She recognizes immediately what God is doing in her life. And when you have chosen the Lord, that's, that's what happens to you and me. Here you have the entire nation of Israel parked, standing still, east of the River Jordan. That's west. East of the River Jordan. And they're not moving. They're not advancing. God's already told them. They're going to have victory and success, but they're parked over there. They're waiting. Joshua sends out two spies. Why? Because there's one woman in Jericho who has chosen the Lord, and he's going to rescue her. He's going to save her. When you choose to follow the Lord, you get a new leader, and you can know because he's your leader when God is working. Secondly, you can resist the power of the enemy. You can resist the power of the enemy. Look at verse 2. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Remember I told you they weren't very good spies. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And at that moment, she had a choice to make, didn't she? What did she do? Well, if you know the story, if you keep reading, she lied. She lied. She said, they're not here. They went out before they closed the gates. If you go out right now, you can, you can catch up with them. And, and they left her house, and they went out through the gate, and they closed the gates behind them, and they, they went for three days to pursue them. Is it okay to lie? I talked about this with the staff. I don't think they told me the truth. <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible is lying commended or approved of. Lying is a sin. Lying is wrong. In the Ten Commandments, we have a reference to lying about not bearing false witness against our neighbor. But you know, when I bear false witness against my neighbor, it's so I can hurt him. Her lying is never approved of or praised in Scripture, but her faith is. 
And you know, she's not alone. There were Hebrew midwives, for example, in Exodus chapter 1, who were told by Pharaoh that when the Hebrew women gave birth to boys, they were to kill the baby boys. And they lied. They said, well, those women, they're pretty, pretty fast. They have the babies before we get there. And it says in chapter 1, verse 20, and God dealt well with the midwives. Didn't say he liked their lying, but their heart was to protect somebody. Their heart was to protect people who were in danger, whose lives were in danger. I can't give you the final answer. I can give you plenty to read. Just Google Rahab's lie, and uh, you can read all about it. But I can tell you that nowhere in Scripture does it say, man, it's so good that Rahab lied. The Bible always talks about it's so good that Rahab trusted God and trusted the Lord. You know, World War II, there were people who were faced with this dilemma all the time. Corey ten Boom, one of the great saints of God who wrote numerous books about trusting the Lord, lied with regularity when people would, Nazi officials would ask her if she had Jews in her home. And it was very hard for her, and it caused great conflict in her conscience. And, um, but she lied and said no to protect those individuals. She had a sister-in-law. Her sister-in-law one time, they, they had a place to hide people uh, under their dining room tables, a trap door, and there was a space underneath where they could hide people. And uh, her brothers one time were running away from Nazi leadership uh, because of their work in protecting Jewish people. And they came into the house and they went into the, under the trap door and they closed the trap door, put the rug over it, put the dining table back on top, and then come the Nazi officials. Uh, are your two brothers here? And she didn't want to lie, so she said they're under the dining room table. The Nazi officials go and lift the tablecloth. They look under the table. They're not there, and they realize that they're being, someone's playing a joke on them, and they just leave. But she told the truth. They just didn't look far enough. Lying to protect someone versus lying to harm. Telling the truth to help someone versus telling the truth to hurt someone. And you and I are faced with those kinds of questions and we don't always have easy answers. But I can tell you that in this particular case that her lie changed her life and the lives of those men. And we'll see how in just a moment. Can we take our attention off the fact that she lied? Is that okay with you? I want you to notice the king of Jericho is mentioned twice. The king of Jericho is mentioned twice. The king of Jericho is her former lord, her former master. And he is coming to her home with these, these men. And I can't imagine a more intimidating situation for a woman in her profession and uh, just who she was, just being a woman in that time and day. And here these men come, and they are confronting her intimidating her, trying to force her to reveal the location of these men. She resists them. She resists them. You know, if I, I can't think of a better picture of what happens to you and me after we trust Christ. You know, we, we are saved by putting our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And when I trust him because of what he did for me on the cross, the Bible says he died for all my sins. You and I so many times are thinking, how can I be good enough for God when in fact he's done everything necessary to make you good enough for him? He died for you on the cross. He died for your sins. 
And so that takes care of the penalty of sin, the punishment that my sins deserve. I'm not guilty in the sight of God because of what Jesus did if I put my trust in Christ. But more than that, Jesus, when he died on the cross, also broke the power of sin in the human life. When I trust Jesus Christ, my sins are not only forgiven, but he, he gives me a new capacity to resist sin in my own daily life. He talks about this, for example, in Romans chapter 6. Our men began a study of Romans this past week. We are halfway through the first half of the first verse. It's going to be a verse-by-verse study, and we're excited about that. But when you get, finally get to chapter 6 of Romans, what you discover is that Jesus said that because you were, you were buried when he was buried, and you were risen when he was risen, because you were united with Christ, that your relationship to sin in this life has changed. He literally says, sin is no longer your master. And there's a consequence of that. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign, therefore, anymore in your mortal body, that that sin is no longer your master. It is not inevitable that you sin. You can say no to that sin habit. You can begin to build a new life. You can resist evil. You can risk the Resist the power of sin because of this choice you made to put your trust in Christ. Up to that moment, she had lived in a promised land without a promised life. But now that she had put her trust in God, she could resist. And she found a new liberty to resist her old king. You may feel like a failure this morning. You may feel like that nothing you do makes a difference. But if you put your trust in Christ, the truth about you is that sin is no longer your master. You have to resist. Jesus Christ is now Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That means practically that he is Lord over everything that would try to be Lord over you. You can defeat and overcome sin in your life. This lady did. She resisted the power of the enemy. When you follow the Lord, you get a new leader. You get a new power But the third thing we see is that you can become a safe place for someone in trouble. You can become a safe place for someone in trouble. Look at verse 12. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. She suddenly cares a great deal for her family. She has this new purpose. 75 years ago, a research project was begun at Harvard University. It's called the Grant Study. It's part of an adult development uh, school that's been there for a long time. They chose two groups of men. One group were underclassmen at Harvard. Uh, The other were street kids in Boston, and they have been tracking their lives for 75 years. And some of those men are still alive. And, and the question in doing the research on these nearly 700 men was to discover what are the ingredients for a fulfilling and a satisfying life. In a sense, what is it that causes people to be happy and content as they grow older? And without any other competing uh, quality. The greatest single determiner of whether or not a person was happy, content, and had a sense of fulfillment was their relationships. Relationships. And not just 
any relationship, but the quality or the connection that a person felt with a spouse, with their family, with friends, with a, with a larger community. You know, it's possible to be completely surrounded by people and not, and not feel like you're connected with anyone. You can feel very alone, even in a crowd. Rahab wasn't living for herself anymore. She now had a purpose. She had a mission. Her first thought was not even for herself. It was for her dad. It was for her mom, her brothers, and her sisters. I don't know if she got along with them. I would think in her profession, in that day and time, because of the indignity associated with being a prostitute, that she probably had some, some breakdown in her connection with her family, that it might have been a very difficult relationship with her mom and her dad. I don't know if her brothers and sisters spoke to her. I don't know what kind of relationship she had, but she cared about them all of a sudden, and she wanted to see them safe, and she wanted to be a safe place or create a safe place for them in what was going to be a very dangerous world. You and I were made for relationships. First with him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then with others, to love others as yourself. And those relationships become your mission, your purpose. It's not your job. It's not how much money you make. It's not how much success you attain. It's all about your people that are closest to you and your relationship to them. Do they know Christ? Do they know him? Are you living in such a way that you're creating a place to where when they want to talk to someone, when they want to go to someone, they think, I can go talk to that man, that woman in my family, that friend that I know who's always been there, who's just been a little bit different. They talk to me differently. They treat me differently. There's some grace about them. I don't understand what it is, but when I need to go talk to them, when I'm in trouble, when the crisis comes, when the storm comes, I think that person is someone I can talk to. They are a safe place for me. You may never be a missionary overseas in a foreign country, but you have a mission. And that mission includes everyone you know, everyone in your family, everyone up and down your street. It includes the people nearest you. So much of the time, you and I wait for them to come to us. So much of the time, we kind of sit back and say, well, you know, I'll love them when they love me. And they show me a little show me a little love, then I'll, I'll, I'm waiting for them to come my direction. But what happens when you and I choose Christ is that that changes, and I don't have to wait for them to come to me. And in fact, I don't want to. I want to go to them. I want to connect with them. I want to know them. And, and the, the transformation that Christ makes makes us into the kind of people that make the first move, that, that say the first words, that make the first effort to reach out to others. When you choose to follow the Lord, you get a new leader, a new power, and you really get a new purpose. And that was happening for her. But number four, you can be set free from your past. You get a new identity. You can be set free from your past. Look at verse 17. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours which you have made us swear unless when we come into the land you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window. They had it in their hand and they gave it to her. This line of cord in the window through which you let us down. And then verse 21 it says, then she said, according to your words so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. At that moment everything changed. 
You see, she, she had a past. She had been a prostitute. She had understood what it meant for your entire adult life to be degraded and used and abused. She was not respected. She was not someone that, that people looked up to. And, and she probably did not feel really good about herself either. And she looked at her life and she felt like a failure. She felt like she was worthless. She felt like she was no good. When she let them in her house, it was a house of prostitution. When she lied, she was lying to protect them, but she was still considered a prostitute. When she sent them out by another way and she helped these guys escape, uh, she still had that past tagging along. But the moment she tied the scarlet cord in the window, she was severing herself from her past. She was looking entirely to the future when she would be rescued by God and the people of God. She was not looking or hanging on to anymore who she was, and her life was about to change radically. You know, she got married. She married a man named Salmon, and she became the great-great-grandmother of King David. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, it says, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. You know why that's in Matthew 1? Because she became one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. You talk about a transformation. She's one of five women mentioned in that genealogy. Four of them have a really checkered past. One of them so bad they didn't even mention her by name. The one who had been the wife of Uriah, but Bathsheba is never mentioned now, because Uriah was the one that David had killed to cover up his adultery. And all of this was in the family tree of Jesus, including Rahab. And she's not called a prostitute here, but she's the great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother of King David. You know, when I was, uh, when I was a kid, we used to choose up sides for whatever sport or whatever we we're going to do at recess. You know what that's like, don't you? Uh, the two best athletic kids or whatever, they're kind of out there standing, and the rest of us are standing there waiting to be picked. You know that? And, uh, and, and these two jock-like characters are picking from us less than jock-type people to be on their team. And they choose them based on what they can bring to the team. What can you add to my team? Can you help me win? Do you have what it takes? And always it comes down to the last kid. And someone says, oh, you can be on our team. Come on. Okay. Here's the difference. When we talk about choosing sides in the scripture, here's the difference in what happened with this dear woman. It's not a matter of us waiting for God to choose us. He's already chosen you. God has already set his love on you. He's already demonstrated forever that he loves you, that he wants you, that he's willing to rescue you, to change you. He's already ready. You know what, what's, what the holdup is? Whether or not you'll choose him. He's like the kids among kids where we have all these other competing affections and things that we want to give our lives to things that we will sell our soul for, things that we will 
commit ourselves to and give ourselves to, whether it's a person or a pursuit or some kind of other thing in our life that we think will make us happy. And God stands there amidst all of these other things that we have in front of us. And he says, will you choose me? Will you choose me? And a whole city of people, there was one woman that chose him. And it changed her life. It changed her completely. But it started with a one choice. And that one choice affected everything that happened after that. No longer a prostitute. She was a wife. She was a mother. She was a grandmother. And God changed her completely. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. In order to experience victory, you must choose the winning side. She knew who was going to win. Do you? Do you know in the end of time who you're going to stand before? <laughs> do, you, do you know who has the capacity to be your leader, to give you a new power, to give you a new purpose, to give you a new identity? Do you know this God? She did. Rahab knew him. She called him by name, Yahweh. Do you know him? Rahab is proof that you can shut down a broken life of sin with a single act of faith. Just a single act of faith can change everything. Will you trust him? When you came here this morning, what is your relationship to God? So much of the time we are kind of like Rahab, living in a promised land without a promised life because we've never made the choice. But once she made the choice, she was on a pathway, ultimately, to victory. To victory. Those aren't empty words. Because, as we'll see later when we look at Romans 8, because of the love of Christ and my relationship with him, because I chose Jesus, neither death nor life, no person, no thing, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We are more than conquerors. We have victory. Have you chosen Jesus? In just a moment, I'm going to give the opportunity to do just that. You know, when trouble comes into our life, what we tend to try and do is get Jesus on our side. Oh, God, will you help me? And we're all about deliverance. We're all about God deliver me from this situation. We're about deliverance. He is about allegiance. It's not about, about us trying to get him on our side. It's about whether or not we will look to him and give him our full allegiance. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. In the very first commandment, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Who's your God? Who are you serving? Who are you giving your life to? And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to fall in love with Jesus. I want you to be like Rahab who got to thinking and saying, you know, if this is true, this is the most important thing I will ever hear, and this is the most important decision I will ever make, is to trust Christ and receive him as my Lord and as my Savior. And if he can change a prostitute into a woman who's praised for her faith, he can change you. Will you trust him? In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I'll be down front. There'll be other pastors here. And I'm going to invite you to come. And we'll help you. If you have questions, we'll help you. If you have questions about Scripture, where does the Bible say that? That I just trust Christ that I just call on his name and he'll save me. We'll share those scriptures with you. But would you step out and make the first step? Will you trust him? Will you come and say, I want to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior? And brothers or sisters, I know some of you are in the storm right now. And when you need someone to pray for you, 
I just want you to know as your pastor, I want to pray for you. There are pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers, others here that will, will pray for you. And, and I, I, heaven forbid, perish the thought that you would come here with that kind of load, that kind of weight on you, and no one pray for you. And so this is as much a part of our worship as singing or giving or anything else we do as worship is when we respond to what God has said to our heart. Do you need someone to pray with you? It might be as simple as reaching across the the pew there and just say, hey, would you pray for me if it's someone you know and trust? We'll be happy to pray with you. Maybe you just want to come by yourself and pray at the front. But act. Act. Respond. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Our Father and our God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power to change us. Thank you for this wonderful woman of God, Rahab, and the transformation that you worked in her life. We pray, Father, you would do that in someone's life this morning. We pray for that person who's, who's desperate in the midst of a storm. They would reach out and find you and choose you to be their God, to be their king. For we ask it in Jesus' name.